I believe that it's important to, you know, gradually get an athlete to the point where they can run a lot, you know, not, and, and that doesn't mean that I'm, I believe in high mileage for every athlete, but I do believe it's important to get each athlete to the point where they can run a lot and run often. The Triathlon Show 230. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I'm joined by coach Julie Benson. Julie is a 1996 US Olympian from the 1500 meters, and after her active professional running career, she turned to coaching. She has coached many elite runners with, among other accomplishments, coaching Jenny Simpson to her 1500 meter world championship victory. In this uh, interview, Julie talks about her coaching philosophy, and we also uh, go into discussing the lack of female endurance coaches, in particular at the highest level among the elite athletes. We'll get right, right into this discussion after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration has developed a sweat test which consists of 10 simple questions in sort of like a multiple choice answer where you can just think about some certain characteristics that uh, relate to your sweat. Uh, you'll figure it out what I mean when I when you go and take the, that test uh, because I'm if I'm not making it very clear. But the interesting thing about this test is that it has been validated against actual sweat measurements with uh, medical grade equipment that precision hydration use to do very accurate sweat testing in person with that equipment so uh, this online quiz is a great and fast and free way to get an, a ballpark estimate for where you are in terms of sweat rate and sweat sodium content and you can use that to get a better handle on your race nutrition and, and hydration strategy in fact precision hydration will make a suggestion for you after finishing the test you will already have have a suggestion for your race plan because one of the questions asked is what sort of race you're training for whether it's an ironman or a sprint distance triathlon or a cycling or running event for that matter Check them out on precisionhydration.com and get 15% off any electrolytes you might order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka. Roka has recently expanded from their range of wetsuits and trisuits and all those things that you know them from to also producing prescription glasses and sunglasses. These have all of uh, the normal attributes that you would expect from Roka, uh, the Roka uh, performance glasses, the sunglasses for sports that they have had for quite a long time, including anti-slip technology, superb optics, and really cool designs. Uh, so that's something that you've come to expect, and that is true for the prescription glasses as well. And if you're in the US, you can even customize your uh, prescription glasses. So that's another really cool feature that they have. Check them out or any of the other product lines that Roka offer on roka.com. And you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code that you can find on the page roka.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's my interview with Julie Benson. 
Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Julie. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Doing well as well. Thank you for asking. Uh, why don't you start by just uh, giving the listeners a brief background of yourself and uh, and your your bio in the endurance sports industry and world as well? Sure. Um, well, I started um, competing at a very young age um, and fancied myself a sprinter. And in secondary and grade school was, um, you know, ran mostly the 100 meters, 200, 400 meters. And, and, um, you know, once I got, in, you know, older to about the age of 16 or 17 years old, my coaches recognized that while I had good speed, it was probably, you know, I was probably going to have more success if I moved up in distance. And so through, um, you know, that age all the way through university, I gradually moved up to the 1500 meters. And um, I was an all American in university, which just means one of the top 12 Americans um, to perform at the NCAA level in the 1500 meters. Um, and, and knew as a university student that I was very passionate about coaching and, and that ultimately I would find myself there. Um, however, I did run professionally for eight years beyond college, and um, I represented the United States at the 1996 Olympic Games in the 1500 meters. And um, after my career, uh, gradually transitioned into coaching and have been coaching since the age of 29 years old. And um, that's where my true passion is. And uh, just as a curiosity, what's your PB for the 1500 meters? Uh, my personal best was 406. Um, I ran four minutes, 24 seconds for the mile, um, but 1,500 meters was 4.06. And uh, when you moved into coaching, and uh, I guess, where did you start? Did you start uh, coaching uh, kids, or did you start immediately with um, adults or collegiate or even professional runners? How, how did that transition uh, turn out for you? <laughs> Well, I was very fortunate. Um, when I was at university, I, I believe my coaches recognized that, you know, I could give it a go beyond college to see how far I could take my running. And um, I was able to remain at my university and, and do a bit of coaching, especially during my downtime. Um, and so I, I started at the collegiate level and remained there through most of my career. And along the way, um, kind of began coaching some post-collegiate athletes and really loved that because I felt like my own professional career, I made many mistakes. And, you know, part of the passion to coach the professional athletes was just to make sure that they could navigate um, their careers a little bit more successfully than I did. Um, and so I just, you know, in coaching the post-collegiate athletes, I really found that's where my passion was, although equally enjoyed um, and enjoy coaching collegiate athletes. What are a couple of those mistakes that you uh, that you did that you really wanted the athletes you coached not to make that stand out for you? Um, I think in general it was just overtraining, and for me the overtraining came in the shape of intensity. Um, I didn't recognize the need for you know true recovery days, and you know I wasn't able to have the maturity or the confidence to go out and just allow my body to recover. You know, I would go out for a recovery run and within five, you know, five to eight minutes would just get very competitive and think about my competitors all over the world. And, and that easy run would turn into very fast running. 
And although I didn't have too many injuries early in my career, they did catch up with me later in my career. And in fact, my most serious injury came right after the Olympic trials. And I do think it's a result of, you know, overtraining, but that I believe came because I just lacked the confidence to take it, take the easy days easy. So kind of a twofold mistake, you know, a mental and a physical mistake. And how do you sort of uh, prevent that from happening in the athletes that you coach now? Is it, uh, are they pretty much on board with whatever you prescribe? If you prescribe, this is the intensity, uh, the easy intensity that you're supposed to go at, they do that? Or is it more about getting buy-in by just having a conversation and really explaining why they're doing what they're doing and, and so on? Well, I believe that that's kind of the challenge for most coaches is is to have the athletes really buy into why they're doing what they're doing. And I believe, you know, coaches, you know, they're not always going to be able to be with the runners all the time and make sure that they're running the exact same pace or at the exact same place you want them to run or always on soft surface or, you know, whatever it is that you think is best for them. But I think if you have a very good communication with your athletes and that you also see yourself as an educator and you're explaining, you know, as you just mentioned to the athletes, why it is they're doing what they're doing. I believe that they will, you know, buy in much more. And, you know, I did have coaches that explained that to me and I was very fortunate, but, you know, as I mentioned before, that mine came in a lack of confidence that, you know, that it was okay to just recover on a day. And so I do speak to that as well, to the athletes about, you know, just having the self-confidence to believe in your training and trust your training and allow yourself to recover so that the next time we need to go hard, your body's going to be, you know, prepared and, and recovered to go hard and maybe even harder than you thought you could go. Um, so I do believe that educating the athletes on why, they're doing what they're doing is going to, you know, create an atmosphere where they, where the coaches will buy in or the athletes will buy into what you're saying as a coach. Mm, yeah, perfect. And going back to the original question with the mistakes, was there anything else, uh, any, anything else major uh, other than the overtraining that you can think of that, uh, that you're now trying to, uh, to prevent from happening with the athletes you coach? Well, there's certainly things that I wish I could have done better. However, I believe a lot of that is just the lack of education that the, you know, and knowledge and scientific, you know, discoveries that the athletes have today. Um, when I was training, there wasn't a lot of talk about, you know, injury prevention type exercises or balance or core. I believe that we've had tremendous advancements in nutritional education and, you know, so I don't know that those were mistakes. I just think it was a lack of knowledge. Um, but if I had the knowledge, you know, when I was training that I have now or that's available now, I believe I would have stayed healthy much longer and, and perhaps run a bit faster. Mm. So what's your coaching situation now? Are you still with your university and which university is that if it is the case? No, I um I'm no longer coaching university. Um and that's mainly because um uh, my husband is also a university coach. He coaches American football and he spent so many years supporting, you know, me coaching athletics and and literally, you know, traveling with me all over the world and 
you know, just being very supportive that I just felt like, you know, with the amount of time um, required to coach NCAA athletes uh, and being away from home, that I, I have stepped away from that and I'm now coaching privately. So I, I feel very lucky because I do have a group of post-collegiate athletes that are chasing their dreams and trying to, you know, um, make their mark on the world stage. But I also coach athletes all the way, you know, from, you know, just amateur athletes that are maybe trying to win a local 5K, you know, all the way to athletes who have never even run before who are trying to run, you know, a, a whole 1500 meters without stopping. Um, so I have a whole group of athletes and a whole range and I, I feel very fortunate and I, I really enjoy coaching all the different levels. Mm, yeah. And uh, you have had some uh, very successful professional runners and uh, still have. Uh, who are the perhaps most recognizable names for the listeners to just get a, uh, get a feel for that? Um, I feel like um, the athlete which I had the longest relationship with, with that also had the longest career, was a Canadian athlete, a 1,500-meter runner named Kevin Sullivan. Um, he came fifth in the 2000 Olympic Games. Um, and was a two-time Olympian for Canada, a multi-time Canadian record holder, um, has run 330 in the 1500 meters. Um, and I coached him and kind of um, worked with him to revive his career as he was an older athlete and, and kind of was having a couple of down years. Um, we worked together to, to find a way to kind of get him going again. And, you know, he got back down to, you know, top 10 in the world and And that was very fun. And I also um, was fortunate enough to work with uh, Jenny Simpson. Um, and while we worked together, she won the, the 2011 IAAF World Championships. Um, and I worked with her for two and a half years. So I, I've definitely worked with some of the world's best and have been very, very fortunate to do that. And it's it's been incredibly rewarding. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a, a good lead-in to a topic that I do want to discuss with you. And actually, one of the reasons that I contacted you in the first place, and that is to discuss uh, female uh, coaches in endurance sports, in running and in the endurance sports in general. And uh, do you have an, an opinion on why there are quite few of you at the elite level Uh, that uh, that are coaching you you are one of one of few in the running world that that i can think of at least that that has coached at that highest level well i think you know the very easy basic answer is just that the sport is incredibly demanding on your time and you know if you're coaching in the united states um our seasons are a little bit different at the collegiate level we run cross country in the in the fall, in the early fall, all the way through the late fall. And then we transition to indoor track and then outdoor track. And then, you know, what I chose to do for many years is go right from the NCAA outdoor season to the post-collegiate, you know, world-class, world-level summer season. And so, you know, you get home from that season and you're right into cross-country again. So it was, you know, literally year-round with no break. Um, you know, and including, you know, so much travel. And so I think when you look at that, um, I think that's very difficult for women once they get married and have a family. And, you know, I think that's probably the most um, common reason. Um, however, you know, just speaking anecdotally and, and from my experience, you know, it, it was always tough to spend, you know, a, a large amount of time in Europe in the summer 
Um, and mostly because for a lot of those years, um, like you said, there, there were no women peer for me to socialize with, you know, and yes, the, the men coaches and the athletes managers and meet directors were all very welcoming and very friendly, but you know, it was kind of a boys club. And so even for meals, or anything social, it was always men. And, you know, as a, as one of the only females, you don't always feel comfortable, you know, hanging out with just a group of men. And so it was quite lonely. You know, it was, it was kind of tough and it, it kind of wore on me, you know, after many years. So I think, you know, it's, it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, and so, but for me personally, those were the two main reasons that I did kind of transition out of the NCAA was just the time commitment and the time away from my family, and then on the the world class, you know, scene and the world, you know, athletics tour, it was just a, a bit lonely to be one of the only females. So, how did you manage the the time away from family thing yourself? Were there any any strategies that you used that that helped with that in in some way? Just in case there are listeners that might want to become coaches themselves and are struggling with with uh, with this. Well, you know, and I, I think that it's, I'm glad that you asked me that because, you know, maybe the picture I just painted was not a positive one, but I have to say that, you know, the, the time that I spent coaching, you know, in the NCAA level and the professional level were the best, you know, incredibly rewarding. They were the most fulfilling for me in my career, um, but it, it was difficult. And I think it's equally as difficult for, for males too. Um, however, the balance, you know, I, I think what allowed me to do it for so long and continue to do it is just that I have a very, very supportive family. And as I mentioned, my husband's in the athletics world also, um, with his American football coaching. So I think he definitely understands the athletes and the time and and everything that's involved. And so I think it's making sure that you do have a very supportive family and that you're always, you know, explaining to them why it takes the amount of time that it takes um, and, you know, I think kind of piggybacking on that idea, I think that's one thing that could help if there was more women mentoring other women and kind of helping them navigate this road. If it's the road you want to go down, what are some good tools? And, um, you know, I think that could be very helpful and hopefully growing the number of females that, that are out there. That was going to be my next question. What can be done to get more female coaches out there? So having more mentors uh, for coaches would uh, definitely be an answer to that. Do you have any other uh, thoughts on on how we can get more female coaches to, uh, well, to coach in general yeah. and at the elite level, especially? Yeah, I think this sport has evolved a little bit. You know, now, um, whereas before this wasn't necessarily the case as, as frequently as it is now, you know, now their, um, shoe companies are a bit more supportive of coaches financially. And so now, you know, maybe, you know, with the mentoring ship, you know, you can figure out, okay, I'm going to go to Europe for this first half. And then I'm going to come home and spend a couple of weeks with my family. And then I'm going to go back and, and just maybe managing the time a little bit better, you know, particularly better than I did. Um, you know, but I think, you know, kind of making sure you're planning and, and, you know, sitting down with your family at the beginning of the year and everybody knows, okay, this is what the year is going to look like. Um, you know, here are the times I'm going to be away here, are the times I'm going to be home and really maximizing both 
and just making sure that you're very present with the athletes when you're there. And, you know, that is one of the tougher things that you have to be there for the athletes, even when you're not there, but with your family, at least you can carve out, you know, times in the day on, on how to manage both. But, um, it is difficult, but as we mentioned, you know, I think having a core group of women, um, to be a support network for each other could be very, very vital. And, and I don't think it has to be strictly, you know, women helping women. I think, you know, um, women can certainly learn from, you know, male mentors as well and vice versa. Um, but I think it's just more conversation about it. And, you know, kind of, as we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, it's just educating and, and learning how, how can you balance this by, uh, just talking with other coaches. Yeah. And uh, from my perspective, as, uh, as a coach, but uh, also as a podcaster, I find that there are a few in triathlon, at least there are uh, a few very recognizable female coaches, but actually what I would really like them to do is to, to get on a podcast like this and, and talk and not all of them do that. I think it's actually easier to get the, uh, the really, the top male coaches to get on the podcast and the female coaches. And that sort of gives the wrong idea that there's absolutely nobody when there actually are some female coaches out there but uh and that's why i'm very appreciative that you're doing this and uh getting on for an interview like this to to show people that there are coaches like you that that are at the very highest level and uh and uh that it is possible it's not something that is just for uh, for men no so, and i think yeah. that's a great idea you know i think the more visible women can be and like you said kind of saying that yes we are here you know that that's how the conversation's going to um you know get started amongst women themselves and and you know i think if if people are constantly sharing ideas i think you know maybe the door will open wider and wider for more women to to kind of come on board and become mentors for world class athletes yeah absolutely so let's uh, switch gears a bit and go into sort of your coaching philosophy or methodology uh, what what are sort of the the foundations of how you coach runners, what you believe in when, when it comes to that? Um, well, I think the biggest thing that I believe in, and, and I, I truly believe that I, I can't waver from this, is that I, I believe it's my responsibility if an athlete, you know, asks me to work with them or chooses me to work with them. You know, I, my job is to really find what works for that athlete individually. You know, if, if I believe, you know, there's an athlete, um, you know, that, that is going to be this world-class 1500 meter runner. And I just think, oh, wow, if they just worked on their speed, you know, they'd be better. Well, if that athlete, you know, it's my job to figure out, is that really what's going to be the best thing for that athlete and kind of get to the, know them physiologically, kind of get to know them mentally, what makes them tick in both areas. Um, you know, I just believe I, I have to find what works for them individually. And it, it, if I am working with a group, how do I g meet everybody's needs within that group and still allowing all of them to train together and, and work off of each other's strengths and weaknesses? Um, so I think that's really the foundation is remaining true to the athlete's individual strengths and weaknesses and making sure that I address those and not treat everybody the same. And, you know, that's, that's a tougher challenge in the NCAA arena, just because at times you can have a very large number of athletes and it's certainly simpler, right. To have one workout for the day. 
you know, or one training philosophy and, and try to mold everybody into that. But I, I just think that somebody's going to be left behind and somebody's not going to be able to discover, you know, how fast they can run if I treat everybody the same. So I believe that's, that's really the, the foundation, um, of what I believe in. And I kind of go from there. Um, and you know, I, I, I believe that, you know, it's very important to work very, very hard. Um, but none of that matters if you don't keep the athlete healthy. So, you know, at one point in time in my career, I was coaching a male that ran, you know, 332 for the 1500 and another male that ran 333. And while they did some hard and key workouts together, their, their training load load looked very, very different. And, you know, that just taught me and kind of solidified that, you know, you have to work within each other's, you know, everyone's individual, individual strength and weaknesses while doing everything you can to try to keep the athlete healthy. Do you have an example of how you find what might work for the individual? Like, for example, if you, uh, you're starting with an athlete, how do you find whether that athlete is somebody who's going to respond well to uh, maybe intensity or volume or some sort of uh, balance between between the two or whether it's actually an athlete that uh, really needs to do a lot less training than most because they might be so so injury prone if you have an example of how you've sort of come to the conclusion on an individual level that would help illustrate the process well i think it's it's a combination of really being very present with the athletes especially when you first begin to work with them and and what I mean by that is really, you know, watching them run, watching the workout, seeing how they respond, seeing how they recover from that workout. And, you know, not only observing that, but really making sure that you're on a high level of communication with the athletes that you're working with. You know, I believe you have to really get to know your athletes because you're going to learn a lot physically from the way they recover from different sessions um, from, from their backgrounds, you know, what, what they did as an athlete before they came to you, but you're going to learn more by just sitting down and speaking with them. Um, because, you know, I think motivation is also going to play a role in, in how these athletes train. You know, um, I was an athlete, for example, just looking at myself that didn't enjoy the aerobic side of training. Um, I was educated and knew why it was important, why I had to get better at it, but I didn't enjoy it. And so I think I was fortunate enough to have coaches that slowly brought me along in that process and, and kind of, you know, led me along so gradually that I learned to love it because I knew why it was helping me. And so I think, you know, it's very important to watch the athlete, look at how they're recovering, watch how they're responding to different stimuli and in training and, and also how are they performing in competition, but equally as important as communicating with them and learning, you know, teaching them how to listen to their body and, and learn the different cues their body is telling them. And, and again, just listening to them and hearing their responses on, on how they're, re- they're responding both mentally and physically to the training. And, you know, I don't think it's something that's going to happen overnight. I think you're going to have to really take a lot of time and be very patient with each athlete to learn what kind of athlete is this. But I, again, it kind of goes back to the overarching philosophy is that everybody's different and your job is to learn the nuances with each individual athlete that you work with. Yeah, it makes sense. 
And when you said that you believe that there certainly is going to be a lot of hard work, what uh, specifically do you refer to that is is the hard work more so on a chronic level, so the overall workload, or is it more so that you will have certain key workouts where you really have to really have to nail those workouts and go very very hard in them but then on an overall level you get sort of the recovery running done in between those runs so that you're always fresh for those can you elaborate on that a bit well i think it's both right i think you know if if you have an athlete that you're working with and i'll just use the collegiate system because it's it's clean and tidy it's it's the four years you know you're i believe that it's important to you know, gradually get an athlete to the point where they can run a lot, you know, not, and, and that doesn't mean that I'm, I believe in high mileage for every athlete, but I do believe it's important to get each athlete to the point where they can run a lot and run often. Um, so how do you do that? I think it's gradually over the years, you know, adding a bit of volume, um, as they're learning a lot of different new things, you know, this is also going hand in hand with learning how to strength train, learning how to do some plyometrics, learning how to balance all of this. Um, but I, I do believe that's, that's the chronic training that's so important is to get, you know, the, the athlete's volume up to a level that he or she can sustain, that he or she can remain healthy and he or she can still have progress. Um, and, and stay motivated. And what I mean by progress and motivation is, you know, every week and even every day, they're having some level of success. So that doesn't mean that, you know, every workout, they hit it out of the park, or they have this great workout, but they're coming down to practice, and they're having some success. Now, if they're overtraining, or they're doing too much volume, you know, workout after workout, they're, they're not going to look great. It's not going to be a successful day. And you learn, okay, well, I need to cut back the volume and maybe we went too far um, volume wise. And again, that's, that's my job to learn where is the volume for each individual athlete. Um, now, during certain times of the year, some of the workouts are going to be very critical and very, very intense. I, I don't believe that you can have those type of worth workouts all year long, but I do believe that, you know, when it's, it's time to, to really race at the highest level and you're getting ready for your, your peak races, I do believe the workouts need to be very hard and very difficult. Um, and so we work that in too. And, you know, that's, again, my job is to educate the athletes on number one, why are the workouts so hard? Why are we doing this? And, you know, emphasize on how important it is to recover. So when you're having these, you know, really difficult workouts that are very intense and, and produce a lot of wear and tear on the body, I do believe the volume will come down some. Um, but again, it's, it's the, it's the coach's, you know, job to figure out what is that perfect formula for each athlete. You know, when, when you are having these really intense and these hard workouts, you know, some athletes can kind of maintain their volume, especially the older, stronger ones. The younger athletes may need to to reduce the volume. And, and when the workouts go back to a less intense level, then the volume can kind of creep back up. But it's, it's very important to watch and talk with each of your athletes to determine what those different numbers are for each athlete. 
Mm. And uh, if you can generalize a bit, how many roughly of those workouts will you do in preparation for a key event, like a championship event? How many how many weeks of those critical, really hard workouts will you do? And will it be two of those really hard workouts per week or just, again, generalizing? And it's going to vary a bit, but, but if you can give an example. Well, yeah, it will vary a lot. You know, if you have an athlete, especially in the United States NCAA system, you may have some athletes that are training to run a 10,000 meters on the track at the the national championships. Um, And then you may have, you know, some athletes that are preparing to run the 800 meters or the 1500 meters. And those athletes are going to vary quite a bit. I believe that the 10,000 meter athletes and, and the longer endurance athletes, they don't necessarily need a lot of that intensity. Um, they do need to have some workouts where they're going to feel what they'll feel in the race. Um, and so we do work on that. You know, we're going to, I want them to feel what it's like to be very, very fatigued and have to run very hard at the end to compete and sprint and beat some people over the end. So we will have some workouts that mimic that feeling. And I do believe you have to get callous to running hard on tired legs but for the the more middle distance runners where you know a bit more of the anaerobic energy system is required of them you know we may do you know two or three of the really anaerobic type workouts um in a season i i would say we would not do those you know maybe those would be spread out over 5 to 6 weeks not mm-hmm. certainly not in the same week um so you know if we're going to have one of those let's say it's, you know, 15 days out from the championships, um, that week, the volume might be reduced just a little bit. Certainly the day before we would reduce the volume and have a, a good quality workout that had, you know, a larger anaerobic component. Um, the next day we would make sure it would be an easier day. The older athletes could still maybe, you know, have some volume. The younger athletes would have a little bit less volume. Um, you know, then the next week we might go back to a little bit higher volume and then you know, six or seven days later, another really hard workout like that, but certainly not two in the same week. Um, so again, you know, I think for the the longer the race, I think the less of the intensity that's required for those harder workouts. Um, but I, I do think, you know, one or two of them for the longer endurance um, athletes is important. And then maybe for the more, you know, middle distance type athletes, they have, they may have a bit more. Yeah, if you sort of measure intensity in terms of the perceived um, exertion for the session, would they be more or less the same? You're still working your your tail off, so to say. In, right, in correct. Workouts? Yes, yeah. they would probably be the same. It would just require different energy systems. And, you know, I, I keep referring back to the NCAA college system. Now, this would be different, a little bit different um, for a post-collegiate athlete because the NCAA athletes in the U.S. are racing quite a bit. So I use some of those races as the workouts. Um, you know, whereas the world-class athletes on the world stage, they don't race quite as often um, most times. And so the workouts will, will um, serve as some of the sharpening and, and more of the, the quality sessions. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so... If we talk a bit about periodization, how how do you periodize the season? And you can choose whether you want to talk about the collegiate system or uh, or the professionals. So that's uh, up to you. But to just to give a general idea of of how you think about periodizing the season. Well, you know this this year would have been the greatest example, correct? It's it's an Olympic year, although um, 
the COVID-19 virus is surely, um, you know, changing that as we speak. Um, so if this were um, a normal Olympic year, we would obviously work um, from the Olympic trials backwards. The Olympic trials in the U.S. are, you know, quite deep and it's quite difficult to finish in the top three in, in most endurance events. And so that does need to be a point in which the athlete peaks, um, in my opinion. And so we would start there and kind of work backwards. And I don't believe in, you know, the, the classic linear per- periodizations where we would take, you know, maybe, you know, 10 months before the Olympic trials and just, you know, do aerobic training and then transition into threshold training and then transition to VO2 max training. Um, I kind of, you know, look at strength and speed and endurance all year long with different emphasis throughout the year. So, you know, starting 10 months out, you know, surely the emphasis is going to be establishing a very good, strong aerobic base. And that's going to be, you know, mostly what we emphasize. Um, However, we're still going to work on, you know, running very fast during that time period. We're still going to work on, you know, a little bit of VO2 max work during that time. However, the main emphasis is what, you know, what is the, that focus for that period, you know, and then, you know, late fall to winter, we would transition a little bit more to where the focus might be you know, while still working, obviously, and, and developing or devoting a lot of time to aerobic training, we're going to transition more into focusing on VO2 max training, um, a lot more threshold running. Um, you know, each individual during that time period, the late fall and the winter, it would be an individual, you know, decision whether they were going to focus on an indoor track season or not. You know, maybe if they were a 10k runner or even tra- training for you know a, a half marathon or a marathon obviously those aren't in the uh, the half marathon wouldn't be an olympic event but you know if they were more of a long endurance athlete they may choose to just run some road races during that time um and you know the the more 5k runners the steeple chasers the middle distance runners they may pick a few indoor races to really focus on um, and that would, those would serve as our quality training during that time of the year. And then once we get into spring, you know, the emphasis is going to be, you know, definitely more um, specificity, race specificity, race pace, while still maintaining, you know, that aerobic training, the threshold training, the speed, um, you know, a, a little bit of every energy system is going to be incorporated all year long um, with just different emphasis as we move towards um, the time in which we want to peak. Yeah, that makes makes perfect sense. And uh, and what would uh, the week on a weekly level, the microcycle? Uh, if you are in, you can pick whatever phase you want to. Really, if it's perhaps uh, when you're getting closer to the race, and you might want to work on race specificity. How, how, what does the week look like? Again, generalizing a bit, but how many quality workouts would would you have a typical athlete do? And uh, compared to how many easier workouts and and so on, if you can go into that. Well, I'd say, you know, like looking at perhaps six weeks out from, you know, the event that we really want to focus on and and where we want to have a peak, Um, you know, you're still in in really heavy training. So I feel like that would be a good example. Um, 
you know, a lot of the athletes I work with train at elevation. And so I, I believe recovery becomes even more important there. It takes a little bit longer to recover at elevation, obviously, because um, there's not as much, much oxygen to help the process. Um, so Mondays, pretty much all year long, um, no matter what period we're in, um, Mondays is a day I call an athletic day. So that's a day where you will go out and have, you know, a recovery run. Um, you know, so you, every athlete will do a, a little bit of a different distance depending on how much volume they do per week. So you would go out, you know, anywhere from, you know, 8K to 15K, um, you know, in that range um, as, as a nice, easy run. But they, we, we would come back to a track and we would spend a good amount of time just working on form drills, um, working on some light plyometrics, um, working on some flexibility exercises. And after we go through all of those, we're going to end that day with some kind of turnover. So it's kind of, you know, we, we devote this amount of time to proper technique, proper form, um, you know, really emphasizing on where you place your foot for the, you know, a stride and, and how you stay nice and tall and engage your core, you know, when you're in the middle of a, of a, a running cycle, um, we always finish those sessions with some quicker running. So you can tie it all together and kind of get a muscle memory pattern of what good proper form is. Um, so, you know, like I said, we go out for the run, come back, spend, devote a lot of time to some drills, light plyometrics, some flexibility, um, you know, walking over, you know, a, a 33 inch hurdle just to get some hip strength and hip flexibility. And again, ending with some speed. So that could be anywhere from, you know, four or five 150 meter repeats where maybe you're changing pace every 50 meters. It could be, you know, four or five times 80 meter accelerations. Um, even in the fall during an aerobic base train, um, base training phase, we may even throw in a, a throw on, um, a pair of spikes just because I like to avoid any kind of transitions. I don't like to go um, with the athletes three or four months without putting spikes on. You know, spikes put a different amount of stress on the Achilles and the calf and the feet. And I don't want to get too far away from that where the athletes aren't used to that anymore. But, you know, they may only do two or 300 meters worth of work in those spikes, you know, once or twice a month. Um, I just want to avoid the transitions with that. So that's that's an athletic day. And that's pretty true. Um, and consistent all year long. As we get towards the race, the speed portion may become a little bit more um, important, emphasized, um, and faster. Um, but all year long, we're touching base with some kind of speed. On Tuesdays, typically, um, most of the year, that's um, a threshold day. Um, so the athletes will do anywhere from, you know, 4K to up to, you know, if you're a 10,000 meter runner up to, you know, 15 K of threshold work. Um, you know, and that, that comes in varying forms. Sometimes we'll even do threshold work on the track. Um, but that, that is pretty much always a threshold day, you know, as, as we're getting towards specific race, um, or peak race time, we may, you know, do some threshold work, and then get recovered and end with a, a couple of quicker 200s or 300s. 
Um, I like the athletes to always remember what it feels like to run race pace on fatigue legs. So they'll do that threshold work and then they'll, they'll get a recovery time and then they'll come back and they'll run some race pace effort. Um, again, just to remind the legs what that pace feels like, even when they're tired. Um, Wednesday is typically a recovery day that looks different for everybody. You know, I have some athletes that run, you know, up to a hundred miles a week. Um, they may do two easy runs that day. I have some, you know, more middle distance runners who may not run at all that day. They may cross train. They may have a day off. They might have a day where they just do a lot of physical therapy. Um, everybody is going to look a little bit different on that day, but the goal is going to be to recover. Um, Thursdays is typically also a recovery day. Um, again, the volume will vary for the different athletes, but that day is another day that we take the opportunity to do some form work and we'll do some lighter drills. The steeplechase athletes may do some hurdles. Um, and we typically end that day with a couple of, you know, relaxed strides. And I, I like the athletes to do that day all on soft surface um, to get away from, you know, the hard surfaces of, of the track. Um, Friday, depending again on the time of year, but, you know, four to six weeks out from a, a peak race is going to be a, a, a tough day. Um, there'll be a lot of VO2 max work um, and perhaps some anaerobic work as well. Um, again, depending on what the, the athlete is training for, the volume could be anywhere where from 3,000 meters worth of work all the way up to maybe 6K of work. Um, how, how, would, how, would you, how much you break it down for, let's say for a 10K runner, how much you break that session down? Um, let me, an example of that, um, you know, four weeks out from the Olympic trials, it might be um, maybe eight times a kilometer. Um, and a lot of times what I'll do is, with that will have ascending rest. So maybe at the beginning, it will kind of simulate how a 10,000 meter race might go, you know, just nice, good rhythm with shorter recovery. And then as we get through the workout, we're going to up the intensity and up the pace a little bit to maybe race pace or a little bit faster, but we'll add a little bit more rest. You know, maybe we would start with 90 seconds rest. And as we get to number four or five or six, we might be up to two and a half to three minutes rest. Um, so they, they would do about eight kilometers, um, of work there. And oftentimes, especially that time of year, um, the last kilometer, um, would definitely be some sort of pace change. So I may say, okay, on number eight, we're going to slow it way back down. We're going to go to threshold pace for the first 200 and then the next 200, a little faster, the next 200, a little faster. And then the last 600, I just really turn them loose. And again, going back to that whole idea of running really fast on fatigue legs. So maybe those 10,000 meter runners might dip into an anaerobic system, but it's only 600 meters, you know, of work in an eight kilometer day. Um, so they, they're, I let them turn loose and really maybe even compete a little bit the last 600 of that, that eighth kilometer repeat. So they, they, they go pretty hard. Um, then we would take a very big break and maybe just do some good um, muscle memory work. So maybe they would finish with maybe four 300s at 5K pace, um, you know, with a 300-meter jog. Um, that, that might be a typical workout for a 10,000-meter runner. 
Mm, perfect. And one more question before we move on to Saturday. Uh, with the threshold session on Tuesday, how do you establish threshold? Is it uh, sort of a based on where the athletes know or feel that their threshold is, or is it based on uh, typical or on race results, or do you actually go to the lab and test it? Um, all of the above. You know, um, I think. <coughs> excuse me. Um, you know, in general, after working with an athlete for a little bit, you'll figure out where their threshold range is. Um, however, what I'll, I'll educate the athletes on is, as you know, working with type A athletes and endurance athletes, they're so time driven and they want to run this time or they run to run faster than they did the week before. And for me, a threshold day is a, is a range. And if you're in the middle of very, very heavy training, and you're doing a lot of volume, and maybe you ran your long run two days before a little bit harder than you should have, you're going to bring a different level of recovery to threshold, you know, every, every Tuesday, probably. And so I don't look for a specific time. We know, um, depending on who the athletes is based on scientific testing, based on races, based on, you know, history, we know about where their threshold range is. And over time, you know, over years or, or months, we certainly want that threshold pace to become a little bit faster in general, but not from week to week. Um, you know, I think everybody's going to, like I said, you, you, depending on where you are in the cycle, if you're really fatigued coming into a five mile threshold run or an 8K threshold run, you know, you may be three or four seconds slower per kilometer than you were the week before. You know, certainly weather can play a factor, wind, all those things can play a factor. So I try to educate the athletes on the the importance of being in that range and the importance that we want our heart rate in a, in a, in a zone for a period of time and not necessarily get really caught up in time. And again, yes, we want to see improvement there over time and certainly as the athlete gets older and stronger but but not really getting super caught up in it um, from week to week yeah no, that makes a ton of sense so uh, moving on to saturday um saturday you know all of this is dependent upon whether an athlete is racing um you know i i used to um especially with with the collegiate athletes i used to go tuesday thursday saturday and those three days were all harder days um and that's when i was coaching at sea level once i moved to colorado where i lived for 5 years and and coached some athletes including jenny simpson um you know i i realized that the recovery is a little bit slower than at sea level um but even upon returning back to sea level i realized that i really did like the extra recovery days and that maybe the the Tuesday Friday days could be a little bit more quality and so Saturday oftentimes has become another recovery day um and again it looks much like Wednesday some athletes will have two runs um a lot of my shorter middle distance runners like 800 meter specialists will do you know half run half cross train um it's a day to get a lot of physical therapy work done um and then what happens is that allows the athlete some good recovery um, for the next day, which is the long run. And the long run over my career has gained more and more emphasis. Um, I think as an athlete, I emphasized it a lot without knowing it. Because again, coming from a sprinter background, my long runs were my nemesis. I was not very good at them. 
Um, and therefore, in my mind, even when I became very aerobically strong, um, I equated long runs with, with pain. And so when I was, you know, that's, that's part of the mistake I made is, you know, I, I was very, very fit. And if you're very fit and you equate a 13 to 14 mile run with pain, that's going to be a fast 13 or 14 mile run. Mm. Um, and so, you know, without knowing it, I was emphasizing the long run, perhaps way too much and not, you know, maybe running it a lot harder than I, I should have. But over time and, and with research and with some great mentors in my life, I've learned how important that long run is. So having Saturday become a recovery day allows the athletes to get a little bit more out of the long run. Um, you know, we certainly don't want it to become threshold. Um, we do want it to become, you know, just a time to develop endurance, um, but it is, it, I feel like it is more beneficial to have that recovery day before the long run. So, you know, Saturday, typically, um, if you're not racing, looks like, you know, a recovery day. And then we would do the long run on Sunday. And what, what would be the, the range of, uh, of the long run distance for uh, everything from a mid-distance runner and then up to the marathon, if we take the two extremes of, uh, of the side? Um, so for a mid distance runner, a lot of that kind of depends on their durability. I've got some 800 meter runner females that, you know, run about 12 miles on Sundays. Um, but typically they, they run more like 10 or 11. Um, the 1500 meter runners can vary anywhere from 12 miles to 15 miles, um, on the long run. And then, um, the half marathoners up to the marathoners anywhere, you know, depending obviously on what time of year it is, um, you know, 17 to 22 miles, yeah. maybe even 23 at times. And uh, would the effort level be sort of like a steady, but not, not threshold, but, but steady as sort of a solid um, effort or, or is it depending on easy? the time of the year? Um, you know, if, if they're in a heavy racing mode or they're, they're really getting closer to that peak race, I may really say, and especially the athletes at elevation, I, I, I might say, you know, let's just hold back a little bit and let's keep the run relatively flat. If they're in a heavy training period, yes, the effort would be more steady. And, and a lot of times I will tell them to, you know, definitely go on a, a, a route where there's, you know, a lot of hills and a lot of climbing. Okay, makes sense. Um, cross training is something that you mentioned a few times uh, through this week. So, what what typical cross training are your runners doing, and and how do you think that that sort of fits into the puzzle? Well, it's it's been great to see the cross training evolve um, since my days of training. Um, I was very leery and hesitant about the elliptico. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but oh yeah. yeah. Um, the elliptico has really become one of my favorite cross training methods. Um, I do feel like it, um, it, it's not necessarily, um, the same running mechanics. I, I just feel like it's a little, it's just something that, that number one, the athletes can get outside and do it, which I like. Number two, I feel like it, it does activate some muscles and muscle groups that are a lot of times a little bit weaker in um, endurance athletes. So they are required to use a little bit more hamstring and a little bit more glute, which I like. And I don't feel like it 
overuses them. So I don't feel like the next day when they go to run that those glutes or hamstrings are really, really fatigued. Um, but they do, they are forced to use them, which I really love. Um, and, and you are, you know, you're upright, you are having to engage your core like you do with running and, you know, your legs are kind of going in the sort of the same motion as running versus, you know, a bike or just a regular stationary elliptical. So I do like that. Um, we use the pool quite a bit. Um, for those athletes to have access to it, we use the Alter G Sum, um, which is, is a nice tool also. Um, obviously, that is the running mechanics. Um, although I don't feel like it's the exact same as running, um, you know, without the the gravity assistance. Um, so we, we do use that, but we, we use a lot of different, um, methods, but I think my favorite is the elliptigo. Mm, okay. And, uh, another thing that you mentioned earlier when, when we talked about some things that how the knowledge has developed since uh, you were, uh, active as a runner yourself was nutrition. So can you elaborate on your thoughts on, on nutrition? Um, well, I believe, you know, there's, there's just so much more knowledge about how nutrition, um, can really play such a, a large role in the health of the athlete. Um, I think there's more knowledge about how often to eat, when to eat, um, you know, how, how soon after a hard workout to eat and, you know, based on the type of workout you did, what, what your calories should look like, like what are the percentages of carbs and protein that you should take after a long run? What are the percentages of carbs and protein and how many calories after a really hard quality workout and how soon after the workout? You know, all those things I feel like, um, you know, play a part in what I call the little things. You know, I feel like all the little things that the athlete can do away from the hard training is going to be a huge role in keeping them healthy and allowing us to come back and train as hard, if not harder the next time. And same with racing and nutrition is just one of those things that is, is vital in, in keeping an athlete healthy. And, and I just feel like that the knowledge is always evolving and we're, we're gaining more and more knowledge about how nutrition can really play a huge role in recovery. Um, so, so, so all, you know, all, all of those ahead. kind of bullet points that you just listed, can, can you also give the guidelines for what the sort of correct way of, of navigating that would be? Like what, what, how soon after the workout should you eat and, and so on? Well, I think first and foremost, I think one of the big things that, that has evolved into our way of thinking that I feel like is really good for runners is how often an athlete should eat. Um, you know, I know myself, one of the biggest things that I did all the time, um, you know, because during the time that I was training, I was also coaching and, and doing some other things. And I would go way too long without eating, you know, and so I would, you know, have a have a workout and maybe have a little bit of a snack and then not have a meal for another three or four hours. Now, you know, knowing what I know today, that's that's not good in terms of promoting recovery quickly. So, you know, if you think about, <coughs> excuse me, if you think about recovery and your metabolism and how they work together, you know, after a hard workout, your body wants to get back to homeostasis um, or kind of equilibrium uh, as quickly as possible. You know, that's what your body wants. It wants to start repairing all the damage that you just did in that workout. And that's what we want as coaches to get our athletes recovered as soon as possible. 
And so if you think about, you know, fuel and your metabolism and the role it plays in that, you think about it like a, a campfire. If, if you just throw one big log on the campfire every four or five hours, well, you're going to have this huge fire um, for about 30 minutes. And then that fire is going to go completely out until you put another log on it. And that's the same with your body's recovery process. You know, you're going to eat this big meal and your body's going to be flooded with all this, you know, glucose and, and really not know what to do with all of it and, and store a lot of it improperly because it doesn't know when it's going to get its next nutritional, you know, calories. And so if you think about maybe just throwing some small, you know, kindling on the fire every couple of hours or every 90 minutes, then that fire is going to burn steady all day long. And so that's how I tell my athletes to think about how they fuel instead of, you know, three big meals or going three or four hours without fueling themselves, you know, just break up all those meals throughout the day. So, you know, when they wake up, they have, you know, 250, 300 calories, you know, they may go for their morning run or they have their workout after the workout, you know, maybe two or 300 more calories, another 90 minutes, maybe a small breakfast, and then, you know, maybe some fruit and a little bit of protein, you know, a couple hours later, and then a small lunch, and then, you know, maybe a small snack of some fruit and a little bit of protein, and then a medium-sized dinner, um, you know, so just keep that um, fueling going all long, all day long. Um, I think that's a much better way to recover for an athlete nutritionally. Um, and then speaking to recovery right after very hard sessions, um, you know, your body within the 20 minutes after you're done cooling down really is open to receiving the calories and will jumpstart that recovery process if you give it some calories right away. And, you know, in general, nutritionists will recommend, you know, a combination of protein and carbs um, in that 20 minute window to really jumpstart that recovery process. And when I have athletes do this, or I think most athletes, when they first start doing this, I don't know that they notice a big difference. But if it's something that becomes a habit, and then maybe one day they don't do it, that's when they say, oh, wow, I'm just a little bit sluggish today because I didn't have that snack. But if you can get some protein in and, and some carbs, you know, you're going to replace all the glucose you just burned. And then also the protein is going to help in, in repairing any, you know, um, micro tears or any muscle damage that occurred in that workout. Um, that 20 minute window right after you're done cooling down is very imperative to jumpstart that recovery. And then, you know, science will tell you in about 90 minutes, get, you know, more of a substantial meal in to keep that recovery going. And uh, in running, especially, and we've seen some high-profile cases pretty recently, disordered eating, uh, anorexia, and like, uh, is very prevalent. Is that something that you've helped your athletes uh, navigate and and overcome? And what would your sort of general thoughts be on that and advice to listeners? Well, I, it's a subject I'm very passionate about, and I think you know a lot of it is because I am a female coach. And it does seem to happen most often with females, although males certainly suffer from this as well. Um, you know, I would say, especially in the NCAA system, that I spent a large percentage of my time um, on this issue. 
whether it was talking to, um, you know, medical professionals, um, affiliated with the university, whether it was talking with the athletic trainers and, and certainly spending a lot of time with the athletes themselves. Um, you know, it's, it's become a topic that I'm very passionate about and, you know, I feel again, and this sounds like, you know, I sound like a broken record, but education is so incredibly crucial when it comes to this. And, you know, I, I say, I I spent so much time talking with the athletes about this, but what I know is that that's not my field of expertise. I I'm not a licensed therapist. I, I did not go to school for any kind of counseling. Um, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. Um, I'm certainly not a psychologist. And so although I feel like I could talk to those, you know, women on, on a real level and, and educate them to the best of my ability, I, I, I didn't feel like they or I had any kind of safety net. And, you know, so it, it was always, I just felt like very confusing for me to be the point person in these women's lives and dealing with this issue. Because again, it's not my, if they want to talk about, you know, um, the best training for them for a 1500 meters in May, I I felt very confident and very assured that I could talk to them, um, and give them really good knowledge about that. But when it came to navigating a real eating disorder, you know, I just felt like every day I was going to do the very, very best I could, but again, that I had no safety net. And I feel like, you know, this is a, a turning point, certainly in our country, but within our sport that, that we can start to really address this issue. And again, I think educate, educate, educate. And, you know, if it were up to me and I, I had a way to fund this and, and a way to implement this, I feel like every training group and every NCAA institution should have a committee in place for all the female and male athletes, but certainly in the, you know, individual sport athletes, you know, that was made up of a nutritionist, a a therapist, a psychologist, um, a coach, you know, just a committee of those type of minds working together on the best way to provide support for our student athletes. Um, It's something that I just feel like is sorely missing um, in, in the sport. And, you know, clearly as we're getting more athletes that are more comfortable to talk about their, their struggles, um, I, I feel like it's our responsibility to provide them with, you know, help to the best that we possibly can. But, you know, I feel like if coaches are out there trying to solve it on their own, they, you know, that it, it, that's very scary. And I just think a lot of coaches need to be reminded that that's not our lane. That's not what we're best at. And certainly we need to provide a lot of support and empathy, empathy to the best that we can, but that's not what we're trained to do. And it it just breaks my heart that so many coaches feel like they're the only ones that are, are helping the student athletes. And I don't think it's okay. And you, this is of course something that we, we see a lot on the collegiate level and we know that it's there and, uh, and in professional running, but do you think it's also prevalent in among amateur athletes? To have some sort of disorder eating. Well, if if you read studies, it's it's something that's prevalent in type A people that like to have a lot of control in their lives, and I think people that are drawn towards endurance sport fit that profile. Um, you know, I feel like you know eating disorders oftentimes are about control, 
and maybe the the athlete doesn't have a lot of control in a lot of arenas in their life and and the nutrition is one that they certainly can control and i think a lot of times it starts there so yes i do think it's um you know sometimes it might be the vehicle which the 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 um runner may turn to like oh this is a great way to burn a lot of calories and i'll just do this and along the way while their main goal is to burn calories, they discover that, oh, I really like this. And by the way, I'm good at it. And so, you know, I think, I think it is there. Um, but I just don't think, you know, a lot of recreational runners um, don't really have coaches or they don't really have, you know, um, a support around them that, that may recognize this. So, yeah, I think it, it could be very prevalent, but I just don't know that it, we have a lot of ways to, address it or know how prevalent it is because a lot of these runners are kind of out there on their own. Yeah. Um, But again, you know, I think with the media focusing on this, hopefully that can translate into more education and, and just our society being more comfortable talking about it. So if a friend or a loved one recognizes any of these symptoms, maybe they can, you know, gently suggest to, to that runner that may be struggling, that's just, you know, running out there for, for fun. Um, to maybe seek some help. Yeah. And uh, the final topic before the rapid fire questions that uh, you also mentioned that uh, we've seen great increase in knowledge in was uh, strength and conditioning. So uh, how do you implement that for your runners? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, again, kind of going back to what we were just talking about, I I try to stay in my lane. Um, I'm very, very passionate about athletes um, being as strong as they can, um, but it has to be in in the realm of their sport. Um, and so I am so lucky that I have a wonderful woman who's a strength coach who has also coached track and field on the professional level. Um, she has just developed a very, very strong passion about strength training for endurance athletes. Um, and she's created incredible... Um, strength plans for the runners that I work with, for the post-collegiate um, runners that I worked with, that I work with. And through that, I have learned that, you know, what, what I did as an athlete in terms of strength training is, you know, I, I never missed a day in the weight room. I was supposed to be in the weight room, um, two to three times a week and I never missed a day. And I loved it because I, for my size, um, genetically, I was very strong. So it's a place I could go and have a lot of success, but I was just, almost lifting for the sake of lifting. It wasn't really, um, I I couldn't really see how is this going to affect my running other than I'm just going to be a very strong athlete. Um, what my athletes now focus on is, you know, movements that are very specific to what they're trying to do. Um, and so if you were to watch, um, some of the athletes that I work with, um, in a, in a strength session, it would look, like a cross between a weight room session and a physical therapy session. So a lot of the, the strength training is designed to keep the athletes healthy. And, um, through this woman that, that works with us, you know, she studies, you know, the movement patterns and, you know, the, the, the more common injuries in distance runners and creates the training plan, you know, to keep these athletes healthy and to gain, you know, strength that's going to translate into them becoming better endurance athletes. Um, you know, so it's much more specific. It's much more um, injury prevention driven. 
Um, and it's, it's something that I believe is very, very important for endurance athletes. Can you name three or four exercises that would be perhaps staples in the training plans? Well, I think the, probably the most important, and this is, you know, such an easy answer. Um, but, um, you know, I think any type of core work, um, and core work, not meaning just crunches or abs, but really, you know, from the area, from the belly button to the mid thighs, front and back, you know, really working on activating those muscles when doing some core routine. I think that's very, very important. You know, again, back in my day, it was just, let's see how many sit-ups we can do. Let's see how much, how many, you know, crunches we can do. And, you know, maybe, you know, sit-ups on the board, holding a 20 pound weight and not really thinking about how does this translate into my running. So I think core work is very important if it's taught well, and the athletes can really think about why they're doing it. Um, and what they're doing it. Um, we'll do a lot of single leg exercises, um, for instance, single leg deadlifts, um, so that, you know, each leg is working equally and, and one leg isn't maybe getting a little bit more work or, you know, recruiting more of the work than the other side. Um, we'll, we'll do a lot of balance work. Um, you know, that's really important. A lot of things on single legs with maybe eyes closed, holding a weight. Um, but just, you know, a lot of, work like that that's very specific to what endurance runners will do you know um every single day and, and translates for them to be more powerful but certainly stay healthy and and strong while we're training really hard got it so let's move on to the rapid fire questions and these are just uh, quick short and sweet one sentence answers and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource related to running or endurance sports um, kind of one of the staples that I always go back to is better training for distance runners by, um, Peter Coe and David Martin. And what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Um, I saw this question and I didn't know if you were referring to as an athlete or as a coach. <laughs> it's open for interpretation. <laughs> okay. Um, I think um, it's being committed to individuals and their strengths and weaknesses and, and not having, refusing to having just a, one general training plan for the entire group. And the, the final one we have maybe already answered, but I'm going to ask it, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your career? Again, open for interpretation, whether that's athletic or coaching. Um, I think started working with the um, sports psychologist that I ended up working with later in my career. I wish I would have worked with him earlier and, and for much longer. Okay, great. Finally, uh, tell the listeners where they can find out more about you. And uh, if you're if you have any coaching slots available, then uh, uh, let us know so so any runners, especially listening, can uh, be aware of that. Um, sure. Um, the website I, I have is called JulieBensonTraining.com. And that's J-U-L-I-B-E-N-S-O-N training.com. Um, and in, in terms of slots, I, I don't necessarily um, have a, a number or a specific number I'd like to work with. I just want to work with people that feel like I can be a good fit for them to, to get where they, they want to go as an endurance athlete. And I feel like if it's a good partnership and you know, there can be good communication – 
then I think it's it's definitely worthwhile doing it, whether I have just a small number of athletes or a large number. If it's a good fit and, and we feel like we have good chemistry together, then I, w- I would love to partner with you as you um, you know push your limits and see how fast you can run. And you coach basically all distances of running? I do. Well, I, I don't really work um, too much or with, with sprinters or, or the technical events. But yeah, I would say from the 800 meters up to the marathon is is my passion. Yeah. And social media, do you have uh, social media profiles as well to follow? Um, and Instagram, it's Julie Benson 44. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much uh, for uh, taking the time out of your day, Julie, to talk with us. It was uh, really interesting to hear your thoughts and uh, on both uh, running, but also generally on, on coaching and uh, female coaches in particular. I hope you, I hope you get some more females on there. And I, I've had a great time this morning uh, talking with you and your listeners. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hope that you enjoyed that interview. As usual, you can find the show notes on thatreflonshow.com and we will have links to Julie's website and to the running category archive of uh, this podcast. So you can find all the episodes that have been categorized as running episodes there if you want to dig deeper and see uh, and got excited about running from listening to this one. Next Monday, I interview Frank Jakobsen, who is a triathlon coach from Denmark, who works with some of the top long-distance triathletes in the world and is most well-known probably for advising Craig Alexander or Crowey when he was an Ironman world champion and still do, still does actually, but uh, and Crowey is still racing, which is really cool. But uh, that was a great discussion that I had with Frank about all sorts of things related to both training, but also generally performance. Frank has his kind of checklist, a 10-point checklist for triathlon success, and we go through that. So uh, definitely stay tuned for that. Stay subscribed. Of course, don't miss the Q&A episode coming up on Thursday either. And just a quick reminder that the new beginner Ironman training plan is available on scientifictriathlon.com. It is currently on the launch period discount of 60% off the normal price. So take advantage of that, even though the racing calendar is uh, very unclear at the moment. But if you know that at some point you will be racing and you are somebody who is planning to do their first Ironman or you are perhaps you have done a few, but you tend to be towards the back of the pack, then this is the plan for you. You can find out more on the website or you can email me to if you have more questions. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free online sweat test to get that ballpark estimate of your sweat rate and sweat sodium content and use it in your next race, whenever that is. And get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash ETS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.